Um, we now move to our annual celebration of the Wright Brothers' achievement. And that is, of course, uh, our most prestigious annual named lecture, now in its 98th edition, the Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that uh, this year the lecture is to be given by no less an individual than the Chief of the UK Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton. Now, after an eminent flying career on Jaguars, which included operational postings in the Middle East, uh, command of RAF Coltishall and the UK Jaguar Force, senior appointments on Typhoon in Air Ops, uh, in Information Superiority Capability Management, um, then a period as Controller Aircraft and then Deputy Commander-in-Chief uh, Personnel and Air Member for Personnel, he was appointed Chief of the Air Staff on 31st of July uh, this year. It's a privilege, sir, to have you with us this evening, and the floor is yours. Uh, Mr. President, thank you very much indeed. Um, all I'd like to say is follow that. It's going to be a tough act. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here uh, to join you this evening and to hopefully uh, take a look back but also take a look forward, which of course is always, I think, a critical element of any talk. Uh, for those of you who like history, you can stay awake for the first part. For those who are looking forward, you can stay awake for the second part. And hopefully someone might hear it all the way through. Uh, thank you very much indeed for the honour to stand here and present the 98th Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture in front of a distinguished audience. I welcome the opportunity to discuss the continuing critical importance and relevance of the business of air power and space, especially when there are so many actual and potential challenges facing us today. The scope of these challenges can be gleaned, I suppose, from a quick glance at the headlines of the newspapers this morning covering the Copenhagen Summit on Climate Change and the Chancellor's pre-budget report. On the latter, personal circumstances will have influenced whether your eye was first drawn by the 50% tax on uh, banking bonuses, the increase in national insurance, or the two-year cap on public service pay. But the central message was clear. We are overdrawn and must cut our cloth accordingly. My talk tonight, therefore, will take this as a starting point. I would argue that innovation and the ability to adapt has in the past allowed armed forces to cut across and cut, cut their cloth according to an efficiently and, and normally timely efficient way of making significant fiscal restraint actually work to our advantage. It is always a challenge and always an interesting journey. But first, may I take this opportunity to thank the outgoing Chief Executive Keith Manns for his excellent job and the support that he gave the Royal Air Force while he was the Chief Executive here at the Society. He was always a great supporter and a great champion. Now, I know he cannot be here this evening, but I do wish him every best of luck in his new role. So there's the history bit. Looking forward, of course, Simon, it's a great pleasure to see you here, and I do hope that we can build a relationship and make sure the Royal Air Force and the Royal Aeronautical Society are great partners into the future. Now, the society embodies what might at first seem an oxymoron, a legacy of vision. I was, it was founded, of course, in, in, in 1886 to promote heavier-than-air flight, a full 37 years before Orville and Wilbur Wright took to the skies. 
It has maintained that tradition of looking ahead throughout its history and has been a vital conduit between governments, academia, industry and the armed forces. The recently opened National Aerospace Library represents a record of all this achievement. It acknowledges the importance of referring backwards before looking ahead. The future, of course, is ultimately unknowable. Steering a strategic course has been described as driving blind with only the rearview mirror to guide you. So in my address tonight, I intend to review briefly our shared aerospace history, but only to better inform the decisions we have to make in the future. We must position ourselves to cope as well as we can with an undoubtedly turbulent future. You will forgive me if I do concentrate mainly on the military aerospace, but there are, of course, some civilian parallels. A topical thread for my address is provided by the financial crisis which I mentioned earlier. It is one from which, maybe now, we're just starting to emerge. It has affected us all, and the nature of the turbulent future will be shaped by the new world order that crystallizes from that recovery. We can be sure that the global balance of power will have tilted, but not quite, where or how much we think it has. The topicality has been further heightened by the Chancellor's statement yesterday. In it, he did not include defence spending within the list of ring-fence spending departments, though I welcome his comment that the government will recognise the special circumstances of the armed forces when it comes to the cap on public sector pay. Regardless of who wins the next election, it is clear that a fundamental review of public finances will happen. Quite whether that will amount to an age of austerity, as many have predicted, is still a moot point. However, it will be clear that all Whitehall departments have to assume that they are likely to be tightening their belts significantly. We will have to make some hard decisions. Now, I'll not attempt this evening to try and conduct a strategic defence review under this roof. That is probably business conducted in the future by ministers who have been properly elected for the next term of office. Rather, I will praise the Royal Air Force's contribution to defending that national interest in previous ages of austerity. I intend to try and draw out some of the valid lessons from air power's ability to have strategic effect in highly cost-effective ways that might shape our future defence thinking. My thesis is that defence has often had to look for innovative, sometimes counterintuitive, solutions to strategic problems during such ages of austerity. Air power, as delivered in this country primarily by the Royal Air Force, has often provided novel options that have proved cheaper in the long run. Cheaper, that is, in terms of finance, politics, and the cost of human lives. But to do so, the Royal Air Force has had to remain conceptually agile and anticipatory in nature. It has also had to remain open to working with a range of global partners on understanding complex political context. I contend that such agility, openness to partnership, political awareness, and desire to reduce costs will be even more important in the future in proving air power's cost-effective advantage. Whilst I will illustrate the relevance of these arguments through reference to examples from the current campaign in Afghanistan, it is absolutely indisputable that there will be many and very different scenarios for military action well beyond counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. We must not do any make any decisions, and we must prepare for those contingency operations because they will come because of events, dear boy, events. Nevertheless, while we will plan for the future, I do not want anyone to think that we have lost sight of the imperatives of today.
The Afghanistan campaign remains our main effort. But when all the armed forces are committed on such a demanding and important campaign, it would be wrong not to begin with a very brief analysis of strategic importance. The Prime Minister has made several speeches recently in which he has outlined the reasons why the Afghan campaign is vital to the national interest. Afghanistan is important in itself as a failing state that has in the recent past, under Taliban rule, become a haven for those with demonstrable capacity and intent to harm us. Sharing a border with Pakistan is also key to the regional dimension. If the Afghan-Pakistan border region became once again the untouchable base for extremist activity, we would all be less secure. Pakistan's future stability as a nuclear power is in everyone's interest. With many Britons having Pakistani ties, is of particular interest, of course, to us in this country. What affects that country affects us here. Finally, there's the reputation and future of NATO itself. If NATO should appear to fall and to fail in Afghanistan, then every extremist in the world would feel emboldened, and the security institutions that have provided our security since 1949 would be dangerously weakened. That is why President Obama's commitment of the 30,000 additional troops to join the NATO campaign, complemented by the 7,000 additional personnel from Europe, is so important. The current campaign in Afghanistan is the UK's main effort and the Royal Air Force's top priority. They may sound obvious, but the air and naval services of an island nation have always been given to defence of the homeland as the overriding priority. Now the Afghan campaign is a form of forward defence. But I cannot take my eye off the homeland defence while dealing with the main effort in Afghanistan. Given air power's rapid deployability, it follows that air power also forms the country's main reserve, held at readiness against a raft of contingencies. We must get the balance of effort right across all these responsibilities, and so our priorities are under constant review to ensure we buy just the right amount of insurance for each possible type of commitment. In a world of infinite resources, we would have no need of strategy. We would be able to over-insure against every possible threat. But we don't live in such a happy world. And every power, even the hyperpower of the USA, is having to prioritise and carefully weigh its strategic thinking and planning. With limited means, one has to constantly reassess the ends and find ever more effective ways of achieving the aims. Thus we have taken some risk in drawing down earlier from the planned Tornado F-3 fighter force in the UK, while we enhance the availability and capability of our helicopter fleets. Doubling the number of Merlin squadrons and deploying a detachment to Iraq, and more recently Afghanistan, is just one example. Let me digress slightly to give you a human flavour of what that commitment means in practice. Our Chinook crews are now almost totally devoted to Afghanistan. They were deployed for two months, during which they will work extended periods flying in high-threat environments. 100 hours flying a month is not uncommon. On return to the UK, the flying is strictly rationed. They take leave and complete the routine administration of service life, around periods when, of course, they're also on national standby commitments. After six months, they return to workup training, ready for their next Afghan deployment. In a two-and-a-half-year tour, they can expect to complete at least three tours of duty in Afghanistan. I'm sure that you can all appreciate that the strain this puts on their families who wait at home. Incidentally, many of our Tornado GR squadrons 
have completed 20-plus such tours in the Gulf over the past 18 years. And RAF Chinook crews have completed up to eight tours in Afghanistan over a much shorter period. To return to priorities, there are many commitments the Royal Air Force retains while we prioritise our effort in Afghanistan. Given the pace of technological advance and the lead time for aerospace equipment development, we must keep an eye on the future to ensure we retain our edge and remain relevant. I cannot, as CAS, let that drop, and I cannot therefore let it drop and hope to pick it up again when the Afghan security is assured and the Afghan authorities are in control. The rest of the world will have moved on, and we would risk being left stranded and irrelevant in future scenarios if we did not keep developing and adapting technology, tactics, and doctrine. This would not be a good return to the taxpayers, have invested much over the last years in our capacity to defend them against a range of threats. These threats have gone, not gone away, as North Korea and Iran's current nuclear brinkmanship and the increase in approaches in our airspace uh, and piracy off the Horn of Africa all remind us. What those future scenarios might include in the sub is the subject of much debate. Indeed, the Department's future green paper will consider in some length the character of future conflict. This is vital analysis and needs careful thought and review, and I welcome similar thinking by independent academics such as Hugh Strachan and Colin Gray, who have, um, have obviously theorised much on future conflict. All are agreed to varying degrees that large-scale, peer-competitor warfare as invented during the Cold War, while still possible, is highly unlikely in the medium term. However, few, if any, serious analysts see counterinsurgency as the only scenario we are likely to face. Limited interstate wars for limited ends have been fought many times in the recent past. Kuwait, Iraq, Kosovo and Afghanistan in 2001 and the Falklands have all seen UK forces involved in limited interstate conflict in the last quarter of a century or so. Another clear example that warrant serious analysis are epitomised in last year's Russia-Georgia conflict and high-technology weaponry is proliferating at, in, in such states in alarming numbers. And we have seen technology and know-how transfer between regimes and states, and while they no, may not be hostile today, they of course have all the pretend to be hostile tomorrow. For example, during the period of the Iraqi no-fly zones, Serbian air defense expertise was exported to Iraq. Iran is known to run pr uh, proxy forces and has demonstrated a vested interest in seeing us embarrassed. North Korea and Iran have collaborated on weapons programs. This is all to do with the, where the threat may come from. Let's not forget the sabers that are being rattled in South America, where Venezuela now operates state-of-the-art Russian fighter aircraft. The world remains an unpredictable place, and geopolitical conditions are unstable. That extent that Niall Ferguson has coined the term the age of upheaval to describe the volatile era in which we live. But we have lived through volatile eras of great change before. They looked preordained and determined in the near, in the rearview mirror, but were destabilizing and fraught at the time. The Cold War looked relatively stable and even cosily predictable in retrospect. It did not seem that way in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. These volatile periods often have their origins in geopolitical events that also left us in a parlous financial state, previous ages of austerity. After the two world wars, 1919-1945, and 
the country had to cope with a crisis arising from the changed strategic context, while being effectively uh, bankrupted by the cost of the two wars. The 1960s and 70s were an era of relative economic decline for the UK, while the vestiges of imperial commitments continued to make demands of our armed forces. And in 1989, the end of the Cold War, uh, and, was, uh, and to some, the end of history, seemed to allow a peace dividend, but simultaneously unleashed a wave of unsuppressed nationalism, confrontation, and conflict. Let me briefly review a few examples from these four periods to show how air power delivered by an agile and adaptable Royal Air Force found novel ways to integrate military operations and the other levers of national power in order to deal with strategic problems. The costs of the First World War, both human and financial, still resonate today. Britain lost 6.3% of its male population. The overall cost to the world has been estimated at $280 billion, or over six times the world national debt accrued from the end of the 18th century to the war's outbreak in 1914. At its end, the United Kingdom was in dire financial straits, yet it faced an increasing burden of imperial commitments as the political ramifications of the global conflict really emerged. Nationalist movements have been emboldened, often encouraged by the political exigencies of our wartime government, as in the encouragement of Iraqi revolt against the Ottoman rule. So the administration of the day faced a dilemma. The intuitive solution to the problem of imperial policing, provide a bigger garrison, was simply financially unaffordable. Nor would the electorate stand further significant casualties after the trauma, trauma of the trenches. As so often during periods of financial restraint and budgetary drawdown, the individual services were at um, loggerheads. None felt more vulnerable than the nascent Royal Air Force, which had to adapt to a post-war role in an era defined by imperial policing. At the war's end in 1918, the troops deployed in Iraq numbered some 420,000. This reduced rapidly on demobilization, but the post-war garrison strength remained high, 25,000 British and 80,000 Indian troops, costing at least £18 million a year to sustain. The serious but ultimately unsuccessful uprising in 1920 cost 2,300 British casualties and over 8,000 Iraqi casualties in just three months. Churchill turned to the Royal Air Force and asked if they could take Mesopotamia on. For an uplift in the air esti estimate, of some £5 million, and in other words, they were using very conservative figures, just over a quarter of the land-heavy option was the cost. In 1922, the RAF took overall command of the policing duties, with a force comprising eight RAF squadrons and a mixed army formation of just two British and two Indian brigades. By 1929, a more peaceful Iraq, with a less turbulent Turkey on its border, required a presence of just four squadrons and two brigades. Now, much has been written over the years about this period of air policing, or air control, as it's become known. Much of it has been unhelpful. Airmen have been guilty of overselling air power's contribution, as being independently and solely decisive, while critics have overplayed the brutality of the air control policy, concentrating on the punitive bombing raids as its defining feature. What can be said was ultimately the overall approach worked, and at much reduced cost in both financial and human terms. I prefer to look at the measured words of one of my predecessors uh, when he was CS, Air Marshal John Salmon, who was the first commander of the Joint Force in 1922. 
he appears to have been aware of the political context and the sensitivities required of him when he wrote, No action is ever taken except at the request of the British civilian advisor on the spot. And only after this request has been duly weighed by the then-state Iraqi Minister of the Interior and by the British advisor and by the High Commissioner in Baghdad. Even after request has passed the threefold scrutiny, I have, no, I have on one, more than one occasion, as the High Commissioner's chief military advisor, opposed it on the military grounds that I did not consider that the offensive action which I have been asked to do would lead to the result that was required. Salmon was aware that it was a broader concept of air policing, that is, allying it with conventional diplomacy at ground level, that had stabilized a potentially disastrous situation and not air power on its own. Another of the preeminent strategists and air power thinkers of the day, Air Marshal Sir John Slessor, was also much more measured about the contribution of air power. In weighing the virtues and vices of the policy, he noted that casualties on both sides had been much lower under air control. He also stressed the point that far from acting in splendid isolation, aircraft were used extensively in direct cooperation with land forces, and reconnaissance duties, patrolling convoys, photographic survey and map making civilian evacuation, medical resupply and evacuation, anti-slavery patrols, famine relief, fishery protection, troop transport, and the deployment of all routes. In short, air power was the advantage that supported almost all the limbs of the state. The lesson that advocates of air power should be drawing from this list is that the ubiquity and agility of air power renders it a key advantage to any commander. Many of the tasks facing us today chime with the roles enumerated by Slessor. I would also note that it required imagination and great flexibility of approach within the joint environment to conceive of such a policy and to enact it so swiftly. Indeed, this was true, true adaptability and agility. For the purposes of this lecture, I also make the point that the fundamental factor driving this policy and necessitating this intervention was the financial austerity of the era. Before I move on to the next era of austerity, let me take a brief diversion. It was only 10 years after these events, that is in 1939, that the Royal Air Force was called to fight a very different war and threat, the defence of Britain against the battle-hardened Luftwaffe. It did so through employing a sophisticated early warning and command control system that hinged on the unproven, at that time, technology of radar. Radar had been developed following experimental collaboration between the National Physical Laboratory and the Royal Air Force. This gave the Royal Air Force, and hence Great Britain, an edge that it didn't have the, uh, when it didn't have the advantage of numbers. Radar was a force multiplier for a force still hurriedly expanding after the drawdown of the interwar years. There are lessons here about continued innovation, experimentation, and not just planning or configuring to fight the last war. I shall return to a couple of these themes in a few moments. The next era of austerity mirrors the first. It is in the post-World War II era. Another period of rapid demobilization while adopting to austerity and seismic geopolitical upheaval. Britain had emerged from the war victorious, only to find it was no longer one of the two superpowers. It was also nearly bankrupt and once again had the red remnants of empire to manage. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the rules of geopolitics were re redrawn and possession of nuclear weapons became a defining characteristic of air power as it remains today. The descent of Churchill's Iron Curtain and the maintenance of a new balance of power posed strategic questions that sat uneasily on a nation with a shattered economy. 
Could we afford to be a nuclear power? Could we afford not to be? It is illuminating that the Soviet Union cut the land routes to West Berlin in 1948. It was the economic implications that caught the Foreign Office's immediate attention, not the military ones. Its analysis read, if the Soviet government were to succeed in their efforts to force us out of Berlin, in humiliating circumstances, the effect would be extremely grave, not only in Berlin, but in Europe at large. It might prove impossible for the Western powers to maintain their position at all in Western Germany. If Berlin was lost to them, it would be a disaster, and it can only be done if we are prepared to reinforce it significantly. As Dr. Sebastian Cox of the Historical Branch notes, when the British economy struggling to recover from six years of total war, this was a deeply uncomfortable prospect. So the blockade of Berlin, which of course we celebrate the sixth anniversary of the end this year, was immediately recognised as a crisis whose outcome could have strategic implications of the utmost importance. The Allied powers had no contingency plans for this occurrence, and no plans for the use of air power to resupply Berlin. Clearly the Kremlin had calculated it couldn't be done, and that the costs of forcing a landline of communication were too terrible to contemplate and self-defeating in any case. To the Soviets, it must have appeared a perfect checkmate move. It is worth thinking on this, as we are now so familiar, so familiar with the outcome of the Berlin airlift that we can wittingly assume it was predetermined. It certainly wasn't, and the success of the airlift was due to innovative thinking, rapid adaption, and determination to take a significant level of operating risk to mitigate a strategic risk. Given that a DC Dakota could only carry two and a half short tons, the thought that they could be used to supply a city whose food requirement alone was over 2,000 tons a day took a bold imagination. At a time when the nuclear bomber captured the imagination as the most terrible weapon and force ever realised, who would have thought that the Cold War's first use of strategic air power would involve the humble cargo plane? A clever trap set in the two dimensions of the land environment had been stopped around an even cleverer adaptation of the third. I would add that there was a marvellous psychological dimension for the people of West Berlin. They saw the airlift as a very obvious and dramatic manifestation of resolve and a demonstration of Soviet impotence. One thinks of the famous US airman, Gail Halverson, known across the world as the Candy Bomber, dropping sweets to German schoolchildren. Less well known is that crowds used to turn out on the banks of the River Havel to see hastily converted RAF Sunderland flying boats bringing supplies into Berlin by water. The use of air power had a political dimension of its own right. The Berlin airlift reflected the practice of the end of World War II and was to become the pattern of the Cold War, where Western air power were used to offset Soviet strength on the ground. My final point on the Berlin airlift involved partnering with civilian companies to provide effect. In a precursor to the future strategic tanker aircraft program of today, Flight Refueling Limited was contracted to fly fuel into Berlin in the prototype air to refueling tankers that were being developed. So moving forward then to today, we see the continuing importance of strategic and tactical airlift. The air bridge to Afghanistan is this country's vital link with the operational theatre. It is maintained day in and day out. Despite that importance, we cannot forget our other global commitments. Early this year, we took a TriStar tanker directly from supporting the Afghan air, air, air campaign and flew it across Africa to the Ascension Island. 
This was there to refuel four typhoons on their way to deployment to the Falklands. The TriStar was required because at very short notice we had been forgiven, we had not been given permission to use a certain airfield as a diversion. This aircraft was over and back in something like three and a half days. In that time, it had deployed the aircraft down to the Falklands and recovered the Tornado F3 from the Falklands. It was back in the Middle East before some people even realized it had gone. A theme, again, that I think is remarkable of today's air power capability. In Afghanistan, tactical airlift shrinks the country and makes it manageable from it with a much smaller ground force. In addition, we work with Afghan government agencies to reinforce the sense of national governments and to keep a, a, a round problem and get a step around problems posed by the insurgents. RAF tactical air transport has been used to ferry wheat seed into Helmand and so enable the harvest in 2008. It was also pivotal in facilitating the training of the Afghan national police recruits. They are now trained away from their tribal influence in specialist training centres similar to those successfully used by the Afghan army. To facilitate this vital program, we've had to fly recruits around the country. While this appears a simple task, I assure you it's not as simple as it seems, and we only have to remember the tragedy of a few weeks ago when an Afghan policeman killed five British soldiers. Flying Afghan police recruits straight off the street, some of whom may well have been ex-Taliban, posed a special security risks. These were accepted and mitigated by commanders in theatre who were aware of the strategic imperative to build up Afghan security force capability. My third example of air power and age of austerity is the air power contribution to counterinsurgency in Oman. While the austerity might not be as obvious here, the financial position in the late 1960s and 70s was parlous. The devaluation crisis of 67, the oil shocks in 73 and IMF loans in 76. In addition, the political commitment of the Wilson government to withdraw militarily from east of Suez and concentrate on NATO in Europe left very little room for government manoeuvre. Yet Oman remained strategically vital and had been an ally since 1798. So when the Sultan requested assistance, dealing with an extremely uh, well-backed communist insurgency, we needed to provide assistance rapidly and on the time. However, we could not overfly or be seen to overfly any of the neighbouring countries. A cheaper way had to be found of getting the help there. As it transpired, these apparent constraints arguably enhanced the counterinsurgency campaign by requiring that we adopt an indirect approach. Now, I shall not rehearse the full campaign here, which saw significant British involvement from 1970 to 75. The essential details, for our purposes tonight, are that a large indigenous Omani land force was reinforced by a strong UK air element. The UK's contribution consisted of everything from training camps to actually RAF loan service aircrew flying a number of Sultan Oman's aircraft to re-support, to support the campaign. As it happened, when the new Sultan took power in 1970, he led a political campaign to reform that, uh, that area of the, uh, that country with a different ideological approach. While in the field, his combined military force made best use of the asymmetric military advantages provided from overseas, largely from the UK. In this military effort, air power provided the key advantage in denying traditional insurgent strengths. The roles that it undertook were almost identical to those outlined by Slessor in reviewing the Iraq campaign of some 40 years before. But as in Mesopotamia, the advantage was only decisive because of the joint approach taken by all three services, working with a truly combined civil and military construct. Today we would call this the comprehensive approach, 
as the American historians Corum and Ray wrote in Air Power in Small Wars, civil and military authorities showed a high degree of initiative and a willingness to employ unorthodox methods with the central objective of getting the job done. The hallmark of the British military tradition of practicality and adaption and the willingness of the Royal Air Force to adapt is noteworthy. The UK's footprint in this operation was small and this reduced the liability and the risk that we took. If the boosts on the ground are indigenous and the hearts and minds battle is easy to win as well, this is the quantitative difference between the, between the Dofar campaign and the air policing in the interval war years. Previously, we had deployed a comprehensive, overly national force of the, from the UK, backed by local uh, helpers. In the political climate in the late 1970s, it was important that air power was able to do the majority of the job with supported by a small ground force. Now, you may remember a little while ago of the Kandahar prison breakout, uh, in fact, in June last year. In many ways, though, I hope you do not remember it. 1,100, 1100 Afghan prisoners, including 400 hardline Taliban, escaped from the Afghan-run prison into Kandahar city. Freebrile News reporting trailed it as a looming political disaster for ISAF and forecasted that an insurgent Taliban would now take over Kandahar. 48 hours later, it had become a non-story. Commander Isaf, then General McKinnon, was determined that the problem would be seen as being handled by the Afghan security forces. But the most capable Afghan forces were based in Kabul. This was at least three days away by road. RAF transport aircraft were diverted in flight from routine tasking to land in Kabul and ferry an Afghan army battalion down to Kandahar. In conjunction with the US Air Force aircraft, this was done by that evening. A plan was put together for the Afghan army to deploy into Kandahar, uh, in, in Kandahar City at first light. Overnight, all RAF missions were retasked in support of the ISAF operation to stabilize the situation pending the Afghan army's arrival. The operation became ISAF's main effort. RAF Harriers provided continuous overwatch for ground forces using their advanced infrared targeting pods. Notably, remembering here Salmon's words on understanding the political dimension of using force in the counterinsurgency, they provided essential support to the Canadian ground forces without once having to resort to dropping weapons. They were aware of Commander Isaf's intent that coalition forces should hold the ring as discreetly as possible, not engage Taliban forces, nor risk civilian casualties. Our Reaper unmanned aircraft were extended on sorties for 17 hours, using state-of-the-art surveillance systems to provide ground commanders with excellent intelligence. Meanwhile, the Hercules re-rolled re to untake leaflet drops in support of psychological operations to measure, reassure the civilian population of Kandahar. This was an undeclared, unpracticed capability that was resurrected and executed within four hours of receipt of the task. In the morning, the Afghan army very quickly and efficiently cleared the insurgents from the populated areas of Kandahar the story and the political liability evaporated. Not only had the problem been addressed, but in showcasing Afghan army capability, it had been turned to the coalition's advantage. Few outside the worlds of, of uh, defense and foreign relations remember any uh, clarity, remember any clarity, Operation Deliberate Force in 1995. This was the operation commanded by General Rupert Smith when he led the UN force in Bosnia and Herzegovina. A bold and dramatic use of limited force 
it took many, especially the Bosnian Serbs, by surprise. In a skilled use of a small ground force and an intense air campaign, I-4 swung the balance of power in Bosnia and broke the political stalemate. Within one month, the warring parties had agreed to the Dayton Peace Conference, at which a political solution to the five-year civil conflict was hammered out. This is a classic example of the utility of force, a term Rubert was to make famous through his book of the same title. Air power in the form of precision attack, close air support to otherwise vulnerable troops, and extensive reconnaissance has been used with great discrimination within a well-analyzed political context to achieve precise political effects. To be more specific, air power had targeted the assets of the power brokers, not the population, and had been very skillfully interleaved with the, with the diplomatic process. There are shades here yet again of salmon in, uh, in Mesopotamia, as I discussed earlier. It had been an instrument in the carrot-and-stick approach to coercing the warring parties. Air power's strength here was the ability to deploy it rapidly, leave it poised and available over the horizon as negotiations developed, and then recommit it swiftly when the diplom diplomacy required it. The lack of a footprint on the disputed territory itself removed a political liability and area of risk. You may remember that the political debate at the time was focused on the liability of exposing coalition ground forces in such a hostile environment, given the political stakes. This question was also to bedevil the Kosovo campaign four years later. At the same time, the Iraqi no-fly zones were successfully containing Saddam Hussein's excesses. The RAF alone flew many thousands of sorties, of sorties in support of the UN-mandated mission. This was an overall cost to the coalition of about a billion dollars a year, of which the UK cost was a, to gross about £30 million. Pounds. Even less when offset against the costs of routine training sorties that were forgotten. And very little political exposure was, came from this and represented a relatively cheap option with a small footprint. The definitive analysis of recent operations in Iraq is still to be written, but I note that political commentators are re-evaluating the no-fly zones and suggesting that they offer a good example of containing and limiting a political problem. In modern parlance, they offer an effective method of risk management with limited political liability and exposure. And in terms of air power, they highlight the particular benefits that long-term persistent surveillance and attack capabilities combined together can deliver. Throughout the years of operation, this combination of capability allowed the coalition to monitor Saddam's activities, deter and when necessary defeat the threats to the aircraft and, to pe and the people on the ground. And when called upon at the start of operation uh, Telic, degrade the Iraqi army and support the land forces charged to Baghdad remarkably quickly. That has been a canter through four examples where Air Bar has used innovatively during a period of parlous national finances to provide a relatively cheap and effective solution to strategic problems. Let me now justify those assertions and draw some lessons before summing up. My first point is that con the context, context is everything. I could have used the Aden campaign in 1967 as an example. Air power certainly made the military contribution more effective, but the result was still political defeat. So I'm not advocating that actions undertaken on, the, on these successful campaigns that I have briefly rehearsed here tonight should blindly be followed on an all, all outwardly future similar occasions. I am not, for example, following the air power zealots who uncritically cite air power as, in the 1920s as a template for independent air action in the future. Rather, what I'm saying is that defense can often turn to air power to generate innovative options in, on many occasions when financial straits procure a more conventional approach. To be effective, 
Air power, as all forms of combat power, has had to be commanded sensitively by strategically adept commanders able to integrate air power with all the other levers of national power. Simply deploying and operating airframes is not enough. In painting air power as an easily applied panacea cure-all, some theorists have oversold the medicine and underappreciated the role of the doctor. Further, air power has carried a limited liability and conferred lower political risk when engaged to deliver limited strategic ends. Indeed, an argument could be made that part of the success of these operations was that financial necessity mothered invention. And invention and innovation at the operational level can lead to the surprise that unbalances one's opponents. This sounds obvious, so it's a little disappointing to conclude that all too often it has taken financial necessity to get us to be so inventive. Some may find it counterintuitive that I say air power is cheap. Many critics of air power and air forces point to the admittedly heavy cost of modern platforms. Now let me make three points in reply. Firstly, the upfront cost of platforms may be high uh, and must be set against the value brought through its life. A tornado ground attack aircraft cost about £20 million in 1982 when it came into service. It then provided an air arm with a nuclear deterrent, a high readiness 24-7 during the Cold War. In 1990, it deployed to the Gulf War and conducted the full range of precision attack and reconnaissance missions. It policed either or both of the no-fly zones of Iraq for 12 years continuously. It was the mainstay of the UK air power and the Kosovo campaign, where in 78 days of operations, no coalition lives were lost, while successfully, the political aims were achieved. It is now deployed in Afghanistan, providing close air support, overwatch, including a live day and night video link for the troops on the ground from its state-of-the-art targeting pod and superb imagery from its high-resolution Raptor reconnaissance pod, which we are looking to adapt to help better fight in the, in, in, against, to help better fight against the improvised explosive devices. The modern tornado can deploy graduated indiscriminate force from its first and absolutely accurate laser-guided cannon, sophisticated brimstone-guided missiles, and a low explosive yield with its, with its own cannon bullets. It has laser or GPS-guided bombs in extremis. Seeing the simple Cold War bomber now carrying this full range of stores on each mission, conducting multiple tasks on a single sortie, is to see adaptation and evolution in action. How many other platforms in any environment have ever undertaken such a diversity of roles or been on active service so continuously? And how much political risk has it mitigated compared to other opinions, other options that did not employ air power explicitly? Secondly, some question why we need high technology platforms for counterinsurgency. But the advantages bestowed by technology are just as necessary in conflicts that are often erroneously considered to be low intensity. It confers a comparative advantage and allows a reliable and discriminating response in a range of circumstances. Not only does this provide better protection for our ground forces, in displaying discrimination, we reduce the force applied to the minimum necessary. It saves lives. It did so in Oman and Mesopotamia, and is doing so today. And we also reduce political risk. We do not do counterinsurgency better by mimicking the low-tech approach of our adversaries and underemploying our asymmetric advantage. Thirdly, what would conflict look like if we did not command the third dimension? How expensive in blood and treasure would it be in conflict B if our adversaries could roam at will above us? In all the examples I have considered, Western air power was the dominant force. 
it could quickly generate almost complete freedom of maneuver and then exploit the third dimension as a force multiplier. In 2007, General Eikenberry, now the U.S. Ambassador in Kabul, estimated that without air power, coalition ground forces in Afghanistan would need to be four to 500,000 strong. That was vice at the time, a 50,000 strong army. Western air forces have become so proficient in generating air dominance in all the conflicts in which we have recently fought that this vital capacity risks being taken for granted. An associated risk is that smart potential adversaries have now had many decades to study our methods and will have been developing strategies to neutralize our competitive advantage. Complete com complacency here could be very costly. So moving on from cost to concepts, a further lesson I draw is that air power has been more effect most effective when it has been used in a fully integrated and in a joint combined civil and military construct. Resources preclude every agent having his own air force, and so the onus is on people like the Royal Air Force to work widely with both military and civilian partners to fashion an advantage where it is required. But our ability to command the third dimension and act as a force multiplier is our value-added and vital ground. This view leads me to question whether the rather rigid doctrinal delineation of supported and supporting commanders is always appropriate. True integration requires a more balanced approach to working together in the planning of all levels of warfare <laughs> as a delivering overwhelming effect once the fighting begins. To that effect, Commander-in-Chief of Air Command, uh, Chris Moran, said when he addressed the society earlier this year that we had re-evaluated our command and control model for the expeditionary era. Indeed, we have. We've introduced the expeditionary air wings and expeditionary air groups that had fallen into disuse during the Cold War. These allow us to command more flexibly in the counter-insurgency environment by developing appropriate risk management to the level best able to exploit it. For example, number 903 Expeditionary Air Wing, based in Basra uh, until last year, not only ran the deployed operating base there, but of course took it over when it was abandoned by the Iraqis and developed it with the help of the indigenous Iraqis into the Basra International Airport you see today. It was most important that this development was done side by side and many such examples could be cited and are being the case today in Afghanistan. Finally, I'm aware that we need to continue to experiment and innovate. Unless human nature has changed irrevocably, irrevocably in recent years, we can be sure of two things. One, there will be more conflicts, and two, that confrontation will be somewhere different and in a different way. This will not necessarily lead us to the point where we can, we can recover if we've dropped our guard and lost our edge. We must continue to fight in the, in, in the era of innovation and the way technology develops, just as much as we must continue to fight to hold the third dimension in warfare. I promise at the start not to give a geopolitical tour uh, de raison, and I won't. You'll remember I briefly looked at the character of future conflict, changes in the balance of power and the risks but also opportunities we face in a rapidly evolving globalized world. So what does this uncertainty and upheaval mean for air power in a modern age of austerity? How will we position ourselves against a range of threats in a diminishing budget? Well, it will not be easy. Some op options are obvious, well tried, and we can continue to push them. Multi-role platforms, a limited number of airframe types, better buy-to-deploy ratios, and international cooperation to realize the economies of scale. Sadly, I do not have the opportunity tonight to give you a comprehensive view of all these facets of air power, but nevertheless, we are well aware that new innovations such as unmanned aviation will have an increasing importance on our way of doing warfare in the future, just as simulation will in our ability to train for that warfare. 
Operating UAVs poses some interesting challenges, as well as opportunities. You're probably aware that our mission crews operate their Reapers over Afghanistan via a satellite link from a shared facility in America. On a two-year tour, these crews will operate every working day within the environment of Afghanistan, without ever setting foot closer than 8,000 miles from it. On one level, they are our most continuously experienced Afghan warriors. On another, they cannot claim a visceral knowledge of the country or even a campaign medal. After what might be an emotionally draining mission, making life and death decisions, they drive back to suburban houses on the north side of Las Vegas. What sort of command challenges does this place on us? Reaper, though, is a relatively unsophisticated air vehicle, optimised for a low-threat environment. We've been working for some time with industry on concepts for unmanned aircraft that combine the benefits of UAVs with the characteristics of today's low, observable or stealth fighter aircraft. These have an obvious combat utility, but let us try and imagine what other benefits might accrue. Firstly, while the crews will need training, that does not necessarily equate to flying hours as we currently generate. UAV crews can truly be trained in a synthetic world. So there will be a much reduced requirement to fly real aircraft for training. We will be able to generate completely realistic virtual environments through simulation. Further, these virtual worlds will be more optimistically realistically, more operationally realistic, and simulate a limitless variety of scenarios and tactical problems. But we are already doing this. At Royal Air Force Hon at Waddington in Lincolnshire, we have a hangar that contains a virtual helmet. It is being used day in and day out by a joint force of Army and Air to create re realistic mock-ups where we can link forward air control with dugouts, Army fire support coordination teams, and ground attack aircraft cockpits. All receive simulated imagery from UAVs, correlating mapping, and virtual targets and threats. It is an incredibly realistic simulation. And that assessment comes not from, from me or my staff, but from soldiers recently returned from Helmand, Helmand who took part in the summer's uh, ferocious fighting on Operation Panther's Claw. Through clever simulation, we can represent the important elements of the real world of Helmand better than we can with live flying training. This effective simulation is not only the saves them, saving the lives of soldiers and airmen, it is saving money. We can also link our simulators across the Atlantic, and so give our young soldiers the experience of working with American air crews. Indeed, we now have proven global links that have recently completed a test exercise connecting American, Australian and Canadian participants at 22 separate training locations. In the longer term, we will be able to simulate even more demanding high-intensity conflict scenarios on the same coalition basis. In fact, the current generation of weapon systems, such as Typhoon and, and, and more especially in the future, the Joint Strike Fighter, have such complex sensor suites and weapons that exercise flying in the benign airspace of the UK will not be possible, and simulation will be the only form of exercising we can do in those cases. This mix of synthetic and live flying is continuously under review, and we have no definitive answers yet, but I can say that training is going to involve more synthetic simulation, not less, and is going to be increasingly distributed via networks so that we can involve our coalition allies in routine training. Far from limiting training, synthetics, just as they are already for Helmand, will allow us a much better simulation of operational theatres and an ability to experiment routinely with future scenarios, tactics and equipment. It will also be a lot cheaper. Finally then, let me turn to the final two areas that I'd like to just address, if I may, both of which very much part of the here and now, and have kept, uh, and both of which have crept up on us. I'd imagine that many of you who drove here tonight did so with the aid of your GPS navigation system. 
So, so trusted are these now that some drivers have literally followed them off cliffs. Haulage and transport companies in all domains rely on them and their tracking systems. If GPS failed, there would be serious disruption that could have economic repercussions we haven't even thought about. But how many people know that our cash point machines too rely on GPS signal? Space is part of our everyday lives to an extent we might find disturbing. Turning to cyberspace, we are now so reliant on email that when asked to write a letter, we have to think about it. Ditto for assess accessing information quickly from the web. This change has occurred in the last 10 years. If we extrapolate from our own experience, we can begin to imagine the extent to which global finance is dependent on the reliability of information transfer. So cyberspace resilience is vital to our economic health. That is why the Cabinet Office is taking such a direct interest as we speak. In fact, our space and cyberspace dependencies are intimately entwined. From an RAF perspective, I would add that the UAV capability that I discussed earlier is dependent on just such a system of satellite communications and navigation and on computer networking through cyberspace to control it. We appreciate these vulnerabilities that we must protect. Just as there are vulnerabilities across the wider aerospace world, an arena that relies on computer network systems for its vital air traffic services and we do, and other aids to safe, for safe navigation, we must be on our guard. This is one reason why the Royal Air Force has been in the vanguard of those working in these spheres. Indeed, the RAF is now truly an aerospace organisation, mirroring, I note, the Royal Air Force Society itself. I do not set out a speculative claim to RAF primacy in these areas, but as with the in development and adoption of radar, the technological focus and dependency of the RAF has placed us squarely in the forefront of conceptual as well as technical development for both space and cyberspace arenas. This is critically important for the UK. The UK of previous centuries has been dependent on the flow of goods and information by sea. The UK of today is dependent on many such flows. That by sea is still vital, but information flows by safe space and cyberspace need policing. Just as the Royal Navy guaranteed passage by sea lines of communication, so we must now guarantee the lines of communication through space and cyberspace. Hostile forces in cyberspace comprise a multifarious mix of state and non-state actors, often and acting in ad hoc alliances of convenience or through proxies. Our adversaries are showing great agility and adaptability. We have seen cyber attacks against banking systems. Our networks are probed and attacked daily. And Hamas and Israel use cyber warfare against each other very recently. Commercial providers in both space and cyberspace can be used unwittingly to aid hostile forces. Because of this, it is often difficult to identify unambiguously who has mounted an attack, who is to blame, and this is the boon of those powers who would use proxy forces against us as an asymmetric advantage. General Wes Clark, NATO's ex-senior Allied Commander Europe, strikes a morning note in an article he wrote this month when he writes, There is no form of combat more irregular than an electronic attack is extremely cheap, is very fast, and be carried out anonymously. And it can disrupt and deny critical services precisely at the moment of maximum peril to the enemy. He concludes that the US government can no longer afford to ignore the threat that computer-heavy, um, computer-savvy rivals or technology-advanced terrorist groups, because the consequences of a major breach could be catastrophic. 
This address has covered much ground in the 45 minutes or so. From the biplanes of World War I that Orville and Wilbur Wright would have been recognized, to the possibilities of cyber warfare emerging from the conflicts of today. I hope that I have convinced you that air and space power has had utility across the spectrum of conflict and through history. It is useful, of course, as a base on which to have debate. If I could offer you the five key points to leave you, then these are those. First, while we are focused operationally on achieving success in Afghanistan in the coming years, we must strategically focus on security and defense requirements beyond the narrow geographical and time-bound situation of Helmand. Not to do so risks the time-honored practice of preparing to fight yesterday's war and not being ready for tomorrow's, and we should not fall into that trap again. The world has not stopped because we are focused on Afghanistan in the short term, and neither should our prudent preparation for future requirements. Second, that air power has often been used innovatively when defence has been forced to think laterally, as it could not afford the intuitive option. To be most effective, it must be fully integrated with all the levers of national power. Third, that air power is a subtle instrument that demands of its commanders a sure touch in navigating the complexities of the civil-military boundary. Used well, it can reduce the liabilities of a large national footprint and the corresponding risk to valuable lives on the ground. And in all this, air power, developed and resourced wisely, can significantly reduce concomitant political risk. Fourth, that we have taken great steps to reduce the costs of air power. While platforms remain relatively expensive to buy, they are also becoming more flexible, have greater utility and longevity, and are truly multi-role, and are providing increasing persistence on operations. And finally, I would like to hope that the Royal Air Force remains a highly agile, adaptable and capable service, keen to adopt to emerging technology and concepts to better sustain the national interest in the uncertain future of the global security. And that, it would seem, is probably a good point to finish and hope we have some reasonable time for discussion. Thank you very much. We do indeed uh, have some time for discussion. Uh, there should be a couple of uh, roving microphones um, available. Do we have any questions? I certainly do. Um, CAS, you emphasised, I think, uh, primarily operational innovation. Um, but we fight with the equipment that we have um, in place. And you yourself emphasise the lead time uh, for aerospace equipment development. Um, in austere times, how do we stay ahead on technological advantage in place, particularly as the pace of technological change and proliferation continues to accelerate? Um, uh, three, I think three parts to that one, if I may. Um, the first one is that you're absolutely right. We have to plan and start operations with what we have. But it's also true these days that the rate in which innovation can come along can be surprisingly quick. Um, certainly, you know, with no political sway at all, the government has spent the best part of £14 billion extra in the last six years on new equipment and new capabilities that have come along in very short order to help the forces fight the campaign as we face it in Afghanistan. Secondly, there is an amazing number of changes that can be made with software these days, and software can itself be changed very rapidly and does achieve a great deal by doing so. And finally, by investing in technology and experimentation now, so that when we actually come to the point of needing to use that capability, it is already being developed, and it may be sitting there nascently, but is potentially available. 
it's only um, there if we put the money in in the first place. Peter Crispin, ex-Air Force, ex-Maritime Air Force. Alluding to a problem with um, money, the Nimrod crash caused by fire in the air, two key points came out of it. One has been alluded to by the chairman, which was the fact that development of this replacement has taken so long and cost so much. And the other, perhaps more worrying for the service, was a comment that the emphasis on flight safety had diminished substantially. You've alluded to some extent to the problem, the solutions to the first problem, though we all see a 10-year program turning into a 20-year program, but also what about flight safety? Um, first of all, uh, one can't ever talk about the Nimrod without being very conscious uh, of the fact that that crash cost 14 people their, their lives. And, and I personally uh, still think about that on a daily basis and regret the fact that that's what happened. I would say that the um, development of more complex, complete programs, uh, the way we've managed them in the past, has tended to mean that we've tried to assume that that capability will be developed in short order, uh, relatively short order, and not understood all the risks that's involved in, in developing something as complex as the Nimrod MRA-4. Um, again, uh, Bernard Gray has had a look at that, and what I think came out of that in the sensible way is that around about 86% of the projects that we do go for in the military equipment all deliver to time, to cost, and the capabilities required. It is the more complex, it is the more joined-up capabilities where we need to improve our capability to develop them. And I agree. The second thing is, um, I also accept the fact that in the terms of the way in which we allowed the uh, safety, assurance, and insurance process to be developed in the Royal Air Force, had uh, um, been conflated rather than kept separate. The fundamental thing that comes out of the Haddon Cave Review means we need to separate out an assured process of insurance and assurance, and that we have done. Bill Tyack, former Air Force person. Um, CAS, thank you for a, an outstanding presentation. It's taken the, the British public quite a long time to, to wake up to what's been going on in Afghanistan for a number of years. Uh, and one can't, can't help feel that uh, the public actually led some of the politicians in, uh, in waking up to what was going on. Um, what can we do to ensure that in future conflicts it doesn't take the British public quite so long to understand what's happening? The first thing I'll say on that one is that I am uh, and have been uh, for, for the last five years absolutely astounded, actually, at the support that the services get from the British public. Um, we're still getting uh, approval ratings of well into the 85, uh, 84, 85% approval rating in any survey you do. That tells me that they understand what the services are doing and what they're, what they're about. Um, in terms of actually understanding, of course, you need to be very clear um, from the outset um, what it is that you're trying to achieve and what the overall aim is, and you then need to be able to measure it and demonstrate progress. And I think if there's a failure, we were not clear enough at the outset what the grand strategic objectives were, what the strategic objectives aims were, and how we were going to demonstrate and measure progress. And that's why I think it's taken quite a while for people to understand what has actually been achieved, which is nothing short of miraculous in some parts of Afghanistan, when you think of the fact that we still keep thinking of it as having a society when this whole uh, uh, escapade started off, when in actual fact, of course, there was no such thing as a society, it was a multiple tribal society out there, and it's taken a long while to get anything like that sort of recognition and understanding 
not not unreasonably, because we didn't explain it, I think, clearly enough in the first place. But militarily, the the, the understanding of the objectives, just as the Israelis found in 2006 uh, in Lebanon, where the strategic aims that were set by the political level were not properly coordinated with the military ones, and not properly coordinated with what was likely to be practical, and they didn't work out how they were going to measure it. So measuring, setting the objective right, measuring them properly, and having metrics you can demonstrate to people that you are succeeding, I think are fundamental to getting them to support the campaign. So yes, uh, Richard Gardner, um, editor of the Society's magazine. Um, it's taken a while, obviously, to get the adjustment right with the air mobility side of the of the balance within the total force available to the RAF, it, as it inevitably does several years, which is now coming right. Are we going to end up with enough frontline aircraft? I, I know you've already mentioned the agility and the multi-role nature, but are we getting a bit tight now on the, the actual frontline side of things? So as perhaps in a few years' time, uh, the ex- um, but well, the the need for mobile operations, as as envisaged at the moment, might have died down a bit. And if we switch back to more uh, basic requirements, have we got enough frontline forces left? Um, it's an unanswerable question. Apart from the fact that I, as CAS, we could say, of course, we need more assets and more aeroplanes. I mean, I, I'd be mad not to, and uh, and disingenuous. Um, it is absolutely dependent on the scenario we're going to face, and that's one of the points I was trying to make here. That we have never yet been able to predict the next operational set of requirements, not the next objective, nor the next strategic aim. So I think it is very difficult to sit here and say, stand here and say, yes, we can, or no, we don't, and we need more of this and more of that for definite. What we'd have to do, of course, and what we're going to do next year, um, according to both uh, political parties when they get into power, is sit down and have a reassessment of what is most probable, most dangerous, and most likely, uh, and therefore we can from that over a reasonable time frame, make a judgment about what sort of forces we ought to have with what sort of level of multiple capabilities uh, that we need to take forward. And then, of course, we will have to apply that critical factor of what the country decides it can afford. But we need, in my view, to do it in that way round, rather than by saying the amount of money is X, now what can we afford to do? Because if we do that, we will limit ourselves simply by the cost rather than thinking about what the need is first. Easy to say, going to be blooming hard to do. David Ledbetter, once of the British National Space Centre, you spoke very positively about uh, the space dimension, but one could observe that the UK's involvement in space from a technology point of view has rolled off rather alarmingly in the past five years or so. There's an innovation and growth team exercise underway, which is due to report to government in the early new year, and the MOD is participating in that. Can we anticipate that the MOD will be a slightly more positive contributor in this area and feel willing to be a little less shackled by its uh, US partner? Because uh, otherwise, uh, much innovative capability in the UK, for example, in the small satellite sector, is not being exploited for the European benefit where our U.S. colleagues are starting to do just that. Is is the MOD going to be more enthusiastic in space research? Um, Absolutely the question that is front and centre in, I think it's chapter 7 of the the Green Paper. We need to understand what the needs, what the uh, opportunities, uh, and what we should therefore be asking about what needs we have for space uh, in the next 10, 15, 20 years or so. 
Um, and uh, all I would urge you to do on that one is repeat that question on the uh, on the good old MOD uh, green paper website and, and put it in there because that's exactly what we need to do. We need to get people thinking about what these innovations are. Um, I'm a great fan of the fact that people have now definitely woken up to the fact that space is not something that other people do and we can ignore. We're absolutely reliant on it for a whole bunch of, uh, of, of capabilities and we need therefore to understand how we can get the most out of it. One of the strategic questions is, do we open up the Thor missile site at Spade Adam again so we have somewhere to launch them from? Because that's obviously a limitation we need to physically have a think about. But no, it's actually the question of the moment and one that's really very much in the minds of people in the building as to what we need to do to be part of it actively rather than merely an observer or a user of it. Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for your questions. I'm sorry to curtail them, uh, but uh, I guess our reception uh, beckons. What I'd like to do now um, is to invite our President-elect, Air Vice Marshal David Cousins, to offer the vote of thanks. David. Uh, our celebration tonight is always an event that uh, looks to the future, whilst recognising the achievements of the past. In that context, CS, your lecture was, had both essential ingredients. You've drawn out key lessons from past events, However, put simply, I think that the air and exploitation of the air is still characterized by a few ingredients. It's six degrees of freedom by technology and above all by man's ingenuity in pushing the boundaries. Agile and adaptable are thus key watchwords and for both I think your analysis and pointers provide some very clear markers. But I suspect you, like your predecessors, are not entirely master of your own destiny nor, as yet, have a clear, exam, a clear exam question to which you need to provide the answer. That said, what is certain that anybody who engages in futurology lays themselves open to subsequent analysis by that more powerful tool, hindsight? And in the context of tonight, two particular examples spring to mind. First, in just one year before Wilburn Orville Wright's achievement, Lord Kelvin was pronouncing... I think it cannot be done. No balloon or aeroplane will ever be practically possible. And perhaps more recently, a Chancellor of the Exchequer who declared an end to boom and bust. <laughs> Whatever the near future holds, Stephen, I'm sure that your rigour of analysis and leading us through the options and the continuation of the flair to embrace the new, which has characterised the Royal Air Force throughout its years, will allow us to seize the correct opportunities through this new age of austerity. We wish you every success in that endeavour. But for now, on behalf of us all, I would simply like to say thank you for this outstanding 98th Wilbur and Orville Wright Lecture. Thank you.